0: Good afternoon, folks, and welcome to this uh, second Communications Forum event of the spring 2014 semester. My name is Noel Jackson. I'm an associate professor of literature and with uh, Seth Mnookin, uh an associate director of the Communications Forum headed by David Thorburn. Uh, I want to call your attention to our third and final forum event of the semester, that's on the topic of online annotation, annotation of texts, movies, uh, music, etc. cetera. Online annotation and the future of reading. That will feature uh, Wyn Kelly of the literature section, Kurt Fent, the director of MIT's Digital Humanities Lab HyperStudio, and Jeremy Dean, the education czar of uh, Rap Genius, the, the website and uh, social media platform Rap Genius. His title is Education Czar. Uh, and I'll, I'll be uh, moderating that discussion. Our moderator today, uh, who will be uh, introducing uh, the, our, our panelists and facilitating discussion today, is Seth Manukin. Seth is co-director of the Communications Forum and associate director of MIT's graduate program in science writing. His most recent book is The Panic Virus, The True Story Behind the Vaccine Autism Controversy. It's my pleasure to welcome Seth and you all to the forum.
1: Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to introduce our two panelists. um, And this, uh, speaking personally, this is incredibly exciting for me because... Um, these are two writers I've long admired uh, um, for different reasons, which I'll, which I'll talk about. Uh, so first um, is our very own Alan Lightman, uh, who arrived at MIT in 1989 as the first um, professor in the history of the Institute to have a joint appointment in the sciences and humanities. Um, we were talking earlier about the specialization that occurs in science these days, and uh, talking about his scientific accomplishments, um, which include the co-discovery, and correct me if I'm wrong here, of um, a structural instability in orbiting disks of matter, right, called accretion disks, that form around massive condensed objects such as black holes. We've all
2: done that.
3: Yes. (laughs)
1: Um, He's also done work on gravitation theories uh, and the fact that adding energy to thin hot gases causes their temperature to decrease rather than increase. Um he uh I, I've been familiar with Alan's writing um since I was in college and Einstein's dreams came out and I still remember uh reading that in one night um in my, my junior year of college. Uh his his if you look at his bibliography, it's a little bit overwhelming as a reader, so it's hard to think of what it would be like as a writer. Um some of his other books are Dance for Two. Uh, Book of Essays, um, The Discoveries, Great Breakthroughs in 20th Century Science, and then two books that we'll be discussing today, um, Mr. G, uh, which is an account of creation as told by God, um, and Einstein's Dreams, obviously, and his most recent book is The Accidental Universe. Um, Hanya Inagihara is a native of Hawaii. Uh, I've known Hanya since we shared an office um, over a decade ago at a magazine called Grills Content, and uh, the fact that she's still speaking to me um, is not because I was well behaved in that office, and she should have all of your sympathies for uh, for going through that. Um, the book that we're talking about of hers, The People in the Trees, um, is a book that she had been unbeknownst to uh, most of her friends, been working on for almost two decades. Right? More or less, yeah. Um, and over that time, she has done a lot of other things. She started out as um, working in publicity uh, at Vintage and, and Riverhead Books, um, then moved to magazines where I met her as a magazine editor, um, worked at Brill's Content, was the executive editor of Condé Nast Traveler, and has done uh, a dizzying amount of travel writing, um, reported from Mumbai, Laos, Bangkok, Shien Reap, Bhutan, Vienna, yeah. Um, I'm just going to arbitrarily cut that off because yeah. there are many more <laughs> countries. Uh, um, and uh, we're here today talking about the representation of science in fiction. Um, so I'm going to, as we talk about their books, I'm going to tell you a little bit about those books. Um, and I'll start with the people in the trees. Um, this is a, well, uh, actually, instead of my starting. Why don't you tell us what, what this is about um, and your inspiration for writing it?
2: So The People in the Trees is about a scientist in the 1950s, the early 1950s, named Norton Parana who is a mediocre medical school student and travels with an anthropologist um, for whom he has a great deal of disdain to a very tiny island called Ibu Ivu in the South Pacific. And this island is known or suspected to have a lost tribe And while they do, in fact, discover this lost tribe, this Stone Age tribe, what he actually discovers is this terrible secret that the tribe lives forever, basically. But, you know, as they live on and on and on, they become commensurately crazier and crazier and crazier, and they, you know, start slipping into delirium. When Norton returns back to the States, he starts adopting children from this tribe, and he ends up with about 50 of them. And then at the end of the book, there's this sort of spectacular moral failing... That calls into question his accomplishments, and you know, makes I think I hope the readers wonder where the line is between a great man and a, you know, and a great scientist. And that's one of the things I wanted to discuss. So, the character is based on a real-life scientist who some of you may know. No, no other audiences know this, but you guys might. Named Carlton Gajusek, who was um, a, a doctor who, in the 1950s, went to Papua New Guinea and spent a great deal of time among a tribe called the Foray. And the Foray had, um, the South Foray. The, Foray, the South Foray had a disease that was besetting them called Kuru, which means the shaking in their language. And they would shake and shake and shake, and then they would die. And so what Gajisek did was he discovered that this disease was caused by, caused by something called a slow-acting prion, which is a virus that can live in the body for decades before triggering to life, and then it's always fatal. So it's a relative of scrapie and mad cow disease and so on and so forth. And, you know, he returned to Bethesda, where he had a lab at NIH, and he started adopting these children. And um, in 1999, it was announced that there was an FBI sting because several of his sons had said that he had raped them. He pled guilty. He went to prison for, I think, 18 months. And when he got out, he moved to Norway, where he lived out the rest of his days, and he died in 2000. So I I hope this isn't jumping have gotten too much. But, you know, I my, my father was also a doctor at NIH, and if you were in pediatrics or immunology or virology or any of those sort of related fields sort of, you know, from the 80s on, the 70s on, you knew who he was, and he was a star. I mean, he changed medical anthropology forever. He changed immunology forever. He changed so many huge parts of science, and so I grew up hearing about him and talking about him the way, you know, that other families talk about Beyonce around the dinner table, and he was always present. And from when I was a very young kid, I knew that I would someday write about him. I needed him to die first, and he did agreeably. Thank God. Um, I know, thank God. But but it was always a great a great um, subject for me.
1: And and one of the, so the the book is structured as his memoir, right? Uh, very heavily annotated by um, a sycophantic acolyte right. of his. Right. Um, and you also, I guess, had a had a connection with someone who could that role. Is that right?
2: Yes. One of my relatives worked very closely with uh, Gajusek on Hantavirus. So he spent a great deal of time in, in, in New Mexico, and they, co- they co-authored a lot of papers. So it really was a family love affair with Gajusek, with the scientist. I remember going to my uncle's wedding, and he was there with a couple of his adopted children. They were rumored to be cannibals, but the South foray probably weren't. Um, but I, I wanted to... Um, you know, I, he is an unreliable narrator in this book, but I also wanted to riff on The Tempest, you know, with with um, the Gajisic character as, parent, as a Prospero and um, the sycophantic associate as Ariel, who follows him and follows him and makes apologies for him until he can't any longer.
1: So, and just so we can sort of establish a, a, a baseline here, um, so Alan, uh, Einstein's dreams is written as um, uh, a series of dreams that Einstein had in 1905. Um, and why don't you? don't you describe it and and what you were trying to do there?
4: Well, there's uh, there's very little evidence uh, that Einstein dreamed himself, and, and I think he has only two actual recorded dreams that were published in the fifties and some that new, he published that, that were published by some psychoanalytic journals right. and some New York. Right psychiatrist immediately jumped on them. Right. Um, uh, the dreams and Einstein's dreams are all fictional um, and uh, in each dream uh, Einstein imagines that time is behaving in a certain way uh, he, he's he's searching for his theory of time, which eventually became the theory of relativity. He's working in a patent office in, in Bern, Switzerland. Um, all of that is true. and uh, In each uh, dream world in which time is imagined in a certain way, uh, for example, in one world time is circular so that all actions are repeated, and uh, another dream world we, uh, we lose our, our memory and so we have to carry it along with us great heavy books that record all the things that we've done in our lives uh, these days it would probably be an iPad right um, and uh, in, in each dream world I explore the, the, the human consequences of, uh, if time behaved in that particular way um And uh, I was influenced by the Italian writer Italo Calvino, um, which um, I I imagine some of you have read, uh, who was a a writer of the fantastic. And he wrote a book called Invisible Cities, uh, which was uh, a book about, uh, a fictional book about Marco Polo's travels, who came back and described his travels to Genghis Khan uh, because Khan wanted to know what his empire was like and uh, each of the the short chapters in that book um, portrays some fantastic city and there's certain uh, the inhabitants of the city are described and, and there's something poignant about each community and so I wanted to do uh, in time, what Calvino had done in space, Right. and I also wanted to uh, explore the, the the tension between the uh, the rational and the intuitive. Uh, with with Einstein representing our our rational sides and dreams representing our, I won't quite use the word ir- irrational, but our intuitive right. sides, and and so that that. And so, when, is, yeah. m- meaning
1: that um, when Einstein, because there is one of these worlds that actually is describes his theory, his special theory of relativity, yeah. and uh, but it describes it in a way that would seem that he, it describes it in a more intuitive way than in a in a. It describes in a
4: fanciful way, right? Um, yes, and and I should mention that the the, the dreams are, are are staged within. Uh, a, a setting in 1905 when Einstein is working in, in the Swiss patent office and he's not dreaming the whole time there, there are waking interludes right. in, in which he uh, talks to people talks to his friends goes fishing with his friends interacts with the secretary in the office but the the waking interludes occupy a small part of his total mental life. But it,
1: it, it's interesting, the Waking <clears throat> interludes um, uh, describe his interactions with um, Michel Besso. is it Michel? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. um, who was actually uh, Einstein's confidant and his sounding board, essentially, for, for a lot of his theories. Um, you describe the physical location where he was with a fair um, amount of detail. Um, and I was curious about the interplay between um, a factual description of some of what was going on, and uh, then these really very intense, um, evocative, imaginative flights of, of fancy. Did that was that did that ever feel like there was a tension there? Uh,
4: well, I wanted to, to to ground the book. the 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 purpose of the of the interludes is to give the book a narrative structure. If, if it were all dream worlds, then you could interchange any three pages of the book for any other three pages. Right. And it would read the same. Um, and so to give well, the- b-
1: Only in one of those worlds, right? Where everything is, where everything right. repeats. <laughs> uh, I think that was uh, April, let's see. Well, My favorite was May 11th, where the passage of time brings increasing order because you would wake up and your desk would be messy and then it would sort itself out and your Mm. calendar would um, work itself out. And that seemed absolutely brilliant to me. Uh, Alas. (laughs) and so, 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 so those, the, the interludes giving it narrative structure, um, because the, the, the relativity dream appears, I'm not sure if it's the exact center, but around the center of, of the book.
4: Um, well, the joke there is, is that the, the, unless you're a physicist, the relativity dream is just as outlandish and fanc- fanciful as any of the other <laughs> dream worlds. So the, because the actual yeah. theory of, of special relativity is, is pretty bizarre. Right. even though it's been, been confirmed by experiment.
1: So the, the, the theory of, of relativity, um, uh, I'm not sure what the one-sentence way to describe it would be, but um, essentially that uh, you experience time differently uh, according to how fast you're moving, um, but really that's applicable when you're traveling at speeds at or near the speed of light, not if you're going 60 or 70 miles an hour. Um, but in this dream world, uh, when people become aware of this, everyone tries to move as fast as possible all the time. Um, they put their houses on motors. Uh, um, a, a man or woman suddenly thrust into this world would have to dodge houses and buildings for all is in motion. Um, uh, and it is, I, I, I did, when I, when I read it, I immediately recognized it and then also wondered if, um, recognizing or not recognizing it would have any effect on how people read the the book.
4: You mean you recognize it as being as a true description? The, yeah, and, yeah. Right. I, I didn't. I expected that most readers would not recognize it, and, and it didn't matter to me whether it was recognized did, or right, not. Right. You know, for the small number of readers who actually know the theory of relativity, it would be an extra little comic bit right, in the book. Right. But otherwise.
2: I enjoyed it, and
1: i didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Hanya, so you uh, you come from the humanities you didn't study <laughs> such science. damning words now right yeah that's um, uh, sad but true and, 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 and yet um, your book is incredibly rich with not only um, scientific details, uh, but a couple of things that I found to be. Um, very true to my own experience was the description of life in labs. Right. Um, which, which comes up a couple of times. And then uh, there were all of these, these, these little touches. Like even, you know, there's, there's almost an aside at one point where you're talking about telomeres. Um, and, uh, and, and you do that in a way that makes it very clear that you understand what you're talking about, even though it has no effect on the reader or on the overall book. And did you feel some responsibility to accurately represent the science in this?
2: Well, you know, I mean, it's... In much the way that this book is an homage to this sort of towering figure of my childhood, it's also an homage to the scenes of my childhood. You know, my father was a research physician for many years, first at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and then he did mouse oncology at NIH. And so I remember some of my earliest memories are going to his, the mouse labs and to the dog labs and to the monkey labs... At, at NIH and being allowed to wander around and look at the animals. You couldn't touch them, of course. But much in the way that the island that uh, Parana visits you know, and, and occupies sort of this, the middle half of the book is its own complete strange society with its own bylaws and its own types of personalities. So too is the life of a lab, um, its own strange culture that very few outsiders get to see. You know, and I remember just hearing stories about you know you have your own you know set of uniforms and and decorations you know with the, with the white coats and you have your own accessories you know the people on the island have their spears and you know a, you know a, a research scientist has his you know beakers and test tubes and so I grew up very much in this in in this environment where the the flotsam of the lab was part of our regular life. You know, we had Bunsen beakers instead of, you know, wine jugs, and that's how, you know, we had milk. And I remember when my parents used to heat up pasta for us, they would do so in these Erlenmeyer flasks sometimes. You know, and so so it was always around, and the lab was really... Everyone's parents do that, Everyone's parents does that, yeah. But it was really a place of fun, and I remember going there, and my father father always told me that there was one person in the lab, and I don't know if this is still true, who's kind of an alcoholic and always is, like, making moonshine, (laughs) you know, on the Bunsen burners and so, you know, there was always someone there and he would bring home the hooch. So I, I wanted to sort of do a tip of the hat to this place where I had many happy childhood memories, kind of you know, running up and down the halls of NIH and seeing all the animals that I didn't know were doomed at the time. Um but one of the most fun parts was researching um the, the there's two sections in the lab. The first is set in the very late forties before Parano goes to the island, and the second is set at a mythical lab at Stanford after he comes back. And so I talked to my father about how a lab would have functioned specifically right after the years, right after the war. And one of the things I found most interesting is he was saying that back in those years, the sort of, you know, I think nowadays we kind of think people who work in labs, they're brilliant, they're sort of allowed to be social outcasts, and he was saying that really wasn't the case in the late 40s. It was, you know, well brought up young men, who, even though they might have been spectacularly bright, geniuses even, still had to play by the laws, and this was true for Richard Feynman, it was true of Watson and Crick, you still had to put on your suit and tie, look presentable, make small talk, and go to the lab. And so I really wanted to create a very specific world, the world of the late 40s, post-Oppenheimer, when science really changed. Um, and yet you had people who kind of came from an older tradition of science, and that sort of push and pull, and Perino represents sort of um, a rebel within this world. He doesn't want to be in the lab. He doesn't just want to be, um, doing what other people tell him to do. And labs are very closed, insular places. I mean, they're very territorial. Um, they're very, um, hostile to outsiders. Um, and they ve- and they, their very existence relies upon a certain interiority of logic and bylaws. And that's also what I wanted to get at.
1: So, so in a book where, um, you really brilliantly uh create a, a whole series of islands. I'm sure there were a number of readers who at the end were convinced that this was a real set right. of islands. Um, you describe uh um, the flora and the fauna um, uh with with intense, very rich detail. Um, you also use that type of detail in the labs. And in I I, I love one of the footnotes here was um, uh, and part of the reason I loved it was because it sort of reached back, I think, unconsciously to 1905, is when um, you describe Perrin's paper coming out in, in 1953, the same year as Watson and Crick's right. paper on DNA, and how uh, um, that was referred to as the year of miracles, which actually was, I think, the term that was, was used actually, in 1905 yeah, it was. For oh, Einstein's and it was used again in 1953, about Watson and Crick. Right. Only in nature, I think. Yeah, but that maybe, counts, right, No, that does yeah. count. Um, but but uh, in what is clearly um, an entirely fictional world, why did you feel uh, uh, this this compulsion to ha- to ground that part of the book in reality, to faithfully and accurately represent um, the life of science and these sort of details?
2: I mean, I think that you know, even though most of us or many of us, sadly in this country, know very little about science in terms of its practical applications, much much less the figures who populated. It. it affects us tremendously in ways we don't know. I mean one of the things I was interested in, this isn't exactly answering your question, was around the nineteen fifties, science really became politicized. You know, again it was after the bomb. It was when um, the fight for funding became that much more intense. It was when things became, although they always have been, that much more territorial. It's when I think the sort of great divide between you know the people who practice science, and the rest of us, the lay people of this of this country, sort of got you know deeper and wider. And um, I, you know, and I also wanted to, to to sort of really document that moment because the 1950s were a very strange period, not just for science, but for the arts and for literature as well. Again, this is really going off point, but <laughs> I often thought that you know, if, if in the 1950s there was this brief span of years, maybe like let's say 51 through 54. In which you know, in the kind of a
1: a very small. Well, it's when I read this, I did feel like your for several months your strenuous efforts to get me to write a book about the art world in the nineteen fifties all of a sudden made much more sense.
2: Well, because I always thought that you know, in in this very small radius, you had the you know abstract expressionists in New York and the Beats, and then the scientists in Cold Springs, and in a very small radius, all three of those fields are being completely remade and radicalized, and so I really did want to not only get the science as right as I could, but also to sort of chart how science was changing, how it was splitting, I think, from you know, mainstream culture, and how it was, you know, how technology had enabled it to move much faster than it ever had before. I mean, this, Norton is working in a time before virology was really a specialty. He was working in a time before there was genetic sequencing, and yet all of that was in the near future, and so much was getting accomplished in terms of discoveries between sort of the late '40s and um, the early right. '60s in that decade,
4: yeah, could I, can I yeah, just add a comment yeah. to, to your question about why um, Hanya would would, would mention um, Watson and Crick and DNA and so on? I, I think that that um, in a novel, um, <clears throat> you're, you're 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 creating a fictional world, but you want your reader to believe the, that world. Right. and the more they believe it um, the more uh, affected they are emotionally Um, if you can't relate to a character if you can't relate to a place then you don't incorporate that into your bloodstream Uh, and so I think that by referring to real events that were happening uh, in the 1950s that Hanya um, makes the reader feel uh, that the whole novel, the whole narrative is something that the reader should believe in as is, is fantastic as it is.
1: And by that same, I, I completely agree with you. And, and in fact, it's one of the reasons that I found the um, degree of accuracy in describing um, the attitudes and approaches of science to be so interesting because I think she could have done that, or one can do that um, in a way, and maybe this is a, a good way to sort of open this up to one of the larger questions that we were talking about. Um, one could do that in a way that is believable and emotionally resident and not accurate. Well, that right. gets back right. to
4: your an earlier thing. You you, you said you, you were talking about uh, Hanya's uh, description of the telomeres, right. um, which was uh, scientifically, scientifically accurate. And I think that you... Either asked the question or, or implied the question. Was it necessary for her to give an accurate description of that bit of science? Since most, I mean, telomeres have to do with um, the, the the aging of cells. Uh, that's all that anybody's know about right. it for this discussion. Right. Ninety nine percent of the readers would never have heard. Of the telomere, right. you know, maybe the same fraction of readers who read the, the Tuesday Science Times would have heard right. of it, but otherwise, um, most readers would not have heard it. So, why is it important that she give an accurate description? Right. And what what I think is that um, readers have a sixth sense about the accuracy of of factual material that they're reading, even if they don't understand it. Um, I think that, that if Hanya had made up some, something totally fictitious about the telomeres, you know, maybe they turn blue right. at, the, at the end of their life right. and sort of snip off a little bit, that I think that that readers can tell, um, that they, they can sniff it out when it's not real, and then that has the same effect of, of not... Having accurate historical markers, that that it takes you out of the the fiction. You you lose your credibility, your believability. Although by Um, that, I
1: I, I must not have a good sniff detector because um, one of the journals that that Norton published in was the Annals of Nutritional Epidemiology and I thought, yeah, that could be real and um, that is not real. No. Uh,
4: Well, that's that's different than making up. You know, we know that the islands are made up. Yeah, right. uh, we know the name of the tribes are made up. Right. But when it comes to a piece of science, right. that I think we do... And, and and this holds for any technical subject. It could be the law. It could be anything where there's a technical, factual background. Right. I think readers can sniff out whether it's accurate. And I think part of that sniffing comes from the tone of the writer. That if the writer has done enough research and i'm talking about the fiction writer now right. when the fiction writer has done enough research to really understand the material there's a certain authority of tone that comes out in the writing that even the writer may not be aware of right that will convince the reader that they've got it right and that this is something they should believe in, and then, by extension, believe in the whole fictional world.
1: And so so, so that gets to why it would be in an author's self-interest to um, understand what they're writing about and, and describe it accurately. Um, and this is uh, something I'm curious to hear from both of you about. Um, uh, is there, outside of, of that self-interest, um, does someone writing fiction have any obligation to present uh, um, aspects of their fictional world as they actually occur in real life? Um, and specifically here about science. I mean, we, we the three of us were talking earlier about scientific literacy, uh, and one way we form impressions about the world is through art and um, films and books and literature. Uh Is there any obligation on on the part of authors and filmmakers and musicians and to present the um, <laughs> someone's disagreeing now, or uh, um, to present those 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 details accurately? Alan <laughs>
4: <laughs> I, I think there's no obligation whatsoever. Yeah. okay. I think if you're creating art, you have no obligations to anything. Right. Um, that that um, you uh, you want the reader to have a powerful emotional experience, and in any way that you can achieve that is okay. Um, now, um, if you're if you're writing uh, if you're writing a piece of fiction about an historical Character. Um, let's say you wrote about um, the actual person, right? Or I wrote about Einstein,
1: or or, or Edmund Morris wrote about yeah. Mildred. Reagan,
4: Yeah. And you're writing fiction. You have to take into account that there is a large body of knowledge about that person, and right. your readers will know that, and it's going to set up, a, you know, a buzz in their head, and you're <coughs> going you're going to have to deal with that buzz. Right. So if you, if you write something that's this patently untrue and clashes which with the, the knowledge that the reader has in their head, then you're going to have to deal with that. And it, it, it may or may not impede your ability right. to, uh, to have your reader accept this, this world that you're creating and be impacted right. by it. But but other than that, I, I, I really don't think that that, that an artist has uh, an obligation to go by the facts. Um, I, I don't I don't know how other people feel about that. But well,
1: Hanya, when when you were um, when you were putting this together, did the extent that you did ground, ground this in in, um, in facts and in details that uh, were accurate descriptions of of, of various realities. Did you think that that was going to accomplish what Alan was talking about? That that was going to um, help give the readers a sense of veracity uh, um, and and sort of ground them in in your work?
2: Well, it's less that, and I think less a question of obligation, and more a question of you know, one of when you read any novel or any or you see any work of fiction, whether it's a movie or you know even if it's you know if it's, if it's a graphic novel or it. it Takes a certain amount of suspension. You're buying into the life of this, of this object. And, you know, if there's nothing to hold on to, um, the emotional stakes get lower. When you're working within the strictures of reality, even if it's a little bit of reality, and, you know, there's some things here that are more probable than others, but I did want to keep the basic grounding of science as real as I could, because if everything becomes, and this is the wrap, Fairly or not on a lot of fantasy books and science fiction books. In a universe, a constructed universe in which everything is invented, it begins to feel more and more remote. You know, the emotion, the character's emotions feel remote, the stakes feel lower because you think, as a person, you can't help but think that could never happen and it's too easy to dismiss. If you have a fictional book in which some things are you can imagine it happening to you, and all of us as You're readers... You're not a
1: big science fiction fan, I'm guessing. I
2: think it can be done very well, but I think it often gets very self-indulgent. You know, I think it often forgets the reader, and I have to be careful in this book as well, because this is science fiction in ways as well. You start forgetting the reader and the reader's emotional response, and start you start kind of going getting orgiastic with how much you can invent. And it's really fun as a writer to do, but if you can't give the reader something to hold on to and relate to, you start losing the sort of emotional resonance, the you know the potential emotional resonance when you are asking a reader, inviting a reader into a world that's partly real that they can imagine happening to them, you know that they can imagine living within, that they can see glints of truth in their everyday. end, then, what happens to your characters and how that reality gets perverted in some cases becomes much more. Um, it, 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 it just it makes a much greater impact. I think. Yeah, think of,
4: of Franz Kafka's book *Metamorphosis*. Right. You know, where a guy wakes up and he's a bug. Well, you can't get any wilder than that. But but everything in that book, besides that one thing, right, accords with our experience with the world. The characters are believable. The situation, you know, given that this given is a that someone's
1: a cockroach, yeah. Uh,
4: but the 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 surroundings. Uh, if he had just invented everything, then yeah. it would have been what. Hanya right sure. and right
2: outside, you know, where he lies, you know, beating his legs in the air, is a scene of you know bourgeois domestic, you know, yeah.
1: you know, tranquility.
2: So he's got
4: the so. the society. Yeah. Correct. Right. Around the bug.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. Um, wh- one thing that that uh, Hanya, I know you've been thinking about is um, the. I, 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 for I guess, for lack of a better word, the scientific illiteracy that right. you see um, in the humanities a lot. Uh, yeah, I mean, we bit. were we were talking about this before,
2: and um, Alan has some interesting thoughts on this that that um, that I that really kind of made me rethink it. But you know, I'd, one of the things I did think about when writing this book, um, you know, I went to a very liberal liberal arts school. And um, it, I emerged. What's a,
1: what's a very, what, what's a very liberal? What would well, just there's be no a... core.
2: I mean, there's no core. Right. So you didn't, you know, here at MIT, you have to take certain courses in the humanities. If you go to RISD, even you have to take certain English courses, history courses, and so on and so forth. But there are a lot of small colleges now, liberal arts colleges, where you don't have to take anything. And in fact, the last math or science course I took was I was probably 16. And you know, my father always says that you know, I'm scientifically literate. And I have, you know, cultural gaps wide enough to drive an 18-wheeler through. And that's really true. I mean, you have sort of...
1: That's I think, true of
2: your father also. No, Not he, the scientific illiteracy, but... Well, he doesn't think so. Right. Right. So, but, but I do think that one of the things that really struck me when I was writing this book is that, you know, a scientist today has, you know, two languages. They speak the language of the vernacular, you know. I mean, whatever society they happen to be living in and whatever language they happen to speak to their, you know, day-to-day, in their day-to-day life. And then they have the language of science, which is very, very different. You know, it's, it's, it's Latinate in lots of senses. It's, has its own, you know, it has its own vocabulary that, you know, that most of us wouldn't be able to make heads or tails of, certainly not me. And, you know, one of the things I was talking to Alan and to Seth about was, you know, a hundred years ago, this probably wouldn't have been the case. If you're a well-educated young man, and you're probably a man, you, you know, you, you had basic grounding in botany. You know, in classics, in Greek and Latin, you know, in, in kind of a, a a wide sort of what has been now changed by the liberal, by the contemporary liberal arts system. So I was, I was really, um, writing this made me feel incredibly inadequate, which is a great thing to feel actually when you're writing a novel because it, it really made me realize that there was a completely other, um, not just set of language that I had at my disposal, but a different way of thinking. Um, that, and that was the most interesting thing to do was to try to think how would a scientist think and the way a scientist thinks is very different from how an artist thinks or how you know someone who isn't in the sciences at all thinks
1: And, and uh, Alan, I'm, I'm curious about what you think about that idea of, of there being two languages um, and it sounds like, Hania, you're, you're almost saying that um, the language uh, that scientists speak to each other is incompatible with the vernacular of their society. I think so.
2: I mean I don't think I don't think the layperson lay person would understand past a couple sentences. And
1: so Alan I'm curious as as to your thoughts about that because I think one of the things we try to do in in the graduate program in science writing is um, prove Hanya wrong uh, and show that you can translate the language of science into the vernacular in a way that is resonant and accurate um, uh, and informative?
4: Well, I, I do think that you can translate the language. Um, but I think, in terms of, of this uh, split between the scientific, scientist types and the, the humanist and artist types, that, that I think uh, that what's most important when trying to understand the other community is not the vocabulary. Because I think that's sort of a, a trivial, superficial level. I right. think it's it's learning how to think the way the other community thinks. Um, uh, and Hanya mentioned that she, that one of the the pleasures of writing the book was to learn how scientists think. And um, I believe that that. Um, the world, uh, a lot of the separation of the sciences and the humanities has been caused by the specialization of the world we live in.
1: In, it, in the sciences or just in general? In general, right. in general.
4: And that specialization has had a lot of, of good consequences. It's allowed us to go very deeply in, in certain fields. But what it has lost is the ability to, to think in different ways and... uh in our educational system, uh, I believe uh, what's most important for students is, is not to learn all the terms in botany or geology or so on, but to learn how scientists think. And, and, and uh, the flip side of that, um, at a place like MIT, which is uh, technically oriented, right. although we have very good humanities, is to learn how humanists think about the world. And and just to give uh, one very, very simple example of of what I mean, um, uh, in the sciences, we are generally taught to think about problems and formulate problems in terms of questions with answers. Mm. That at any given moment in time, a, a scientist is working on a problem that he or she feels has an answer to it. It might take five years, it might take ten years, it might take a lifetime, but you believe that there is an answer to the problem, and there's actually a name for it. It's called the well-posed problem. Right. And, and most scientists in graduate school were taught about the well-posed problem. In um, the humanities and arts, uh, there frequently aren't, answers to the questions. In fact, it's frequently the case that the question is more interesting than the answer, uh, and frequently the answer doesn't exist at all. Or the answer is almost besides the point. The answer is beside the point. I mean, if you you ask a question like, um, what is the nature of God, or would we be happier if we lived to be a thousand years old? I mean, those are extremely interesting questions that don't have uh, definite answers. Right. But yet they they stimulate us. They they provoke our imagination. They're they're mm-hmm. very enriching, and so this is just one s- small example of the difference in the ways that that scientists and right. artists would approach the world, and it's that that kind of difference that should be conveyed in education. I mean, it's
1: it's it's interesting, and in, in in some ways. Um you know, all, all 30 uh,
4: different dreams
1: in here are um, posing uh, questions without clear answers. Um, I guess, with the exception of possibly one of them. But, uh, um, you know, and, and, and I was struck by how many times in here um, uh, the result of a world where um, time is circular or uh, um, uh, people's lives exist in a day, or uh, is um, either uh, ecstatic or beyond despondent, um, or both, as as you move through the the dream. Uh, was that a conscious effort to sort of not put well posed problems in here?
4: Yes. All right. Yes. <laughs> Wait. Can I can I ask
5: a question?
2: Yeah, um, yes. So, Alan, I wanted to know because you you know you are in both sides of both worlds. Can you train someone who's fundamentally a humanist or has been raised as a humanist to think like a scientist and vice versa, that's part one. And part two, when you're have, when you teaching writing to people who are fundamentally scientifically minded, do they approach it differently?
4: Well, I, I think that you can teach people how to think yeah. in the two different ways. Um, that, that's the answer to the first question. Um, and uh, the the uh, writing students that I've had in MIT uh, have, uh, I think, exhibited their MITness. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, MIT students are, are are very original and they're um, they're irreverent. Yeah. And and um, that irreverence goes along with their originality, um, and it's, it's a lovely quality, uh, and, and uh, so those are the particular joys and challenges that I've had teaching MIT students creative writing. Um, I was teaching a, a, a fiction writing course uh, some years ago at MIT, and we were talking about uh, creating tension in a story. And and I said that often the the place or the circumstances creates the tension of the story. And I said, for example, it would be very, very hard to write a short story that was set at a bowling alley. And so how many students So the very next (laughs) assignment, a student Mm. turned in this wonderful story (laughs) that was set in a bowling alley. It was just a fabulous story. And I was so pleased to see this. Um, you know, the other lesson is never believe what your teacher says. Right, right. <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> Are you fundamentally drawn more to one way of, one type of person than the other? I, I
4: don't, I don't think so. Mm. Yeah.
2: I remember when I when I was here, my uh, two of my very good high school friends went to MIT, so I spent a lot of time on the campus when I was in college. And they were all interviewing. They were all, of course, six majors. They're all EE students. And they were, it was you know, it was senior year. It was graduation time. They're all going on in interviews. And, you know, I asked them, well, what kind of questions do you get asked? And, you know, when you're going up for a job in publishing, they ask you questions like, <laughs> you know, like, what's your favorite Wharton book? But, you know, they, so they asked them, They asked. apparently one of the questions was, they had a lot of math problems, they had a lot of word problems, and one of them was, why are manhole covers round? And I just, you know, I had no idea. And my friend's like, come on, it's so easy, it's so logical. Think. Answer? Well, I, I thought, I said, well, long ago mammoths roamed the earth, and they, like, left these sort of impressions. Yeah, no, so bad. they won't fall down the hole.
1: So what? So oh, the covers so the, won't the fall covers down. At all, yeah. At all, right.
2: Right. But you know, but I, but it's it's such a different way of thinking that when I can be exposed to that, it feels like a revelation. It feels like you're getting to unlock a key to some other vast part of the
1: universe that you don't naturally see. Hanya, uh, 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 um, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you I think a um, a not well posed problem or question, mm-hmm. um, and that's uh, um, I'm curious about whether you think science mm-hmm. is a moral endeavor. Um, because there were a couple of moments there were, there were several moments where Norton seemed very acutely to be aware of the impact that he was having um, on this society right uh, and a couple of times when it seemed that he felt horrible about that right, and then other times when he said uh, it 's not my fault, I, I was just doing what any scientist would do um, you know you have to you have to follow. Wherever the question leads you, Um, and so I'm 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 curious about your thoughts on that. Well, I don't think that. uh, I think that the difference between a research
2: scientist and a clinician are vast. You know, if a research scientist is more of a philosopher, I think a clinician is more of a priest. You know, by which I mean, so I saw my own father go from being a research scientist to being someone who worked with patients, and the change was quite great. I mean, he was he started off when he was a research scientist, he was only interested in the virus. The sickness was what interested him the most. You know, it was he had awe as as Norton does for how I mean when, when doctors talk about a beautiful virus, you know what that means. It's beautiful in its construction, it's beautiful in how quickly it can demolish a being. It's they the talk about it,
1: lethality, Yeah, yes. they
2: talk about it as a sort of reverence. When you become a doctor you can't think like that. You know, you're the person you're obligated. By your oath and by you know by your position to take care of the patient in front of you, you can 't go around fetishizing the virus that 's ruining someone, so i, I do so Sorry. i do but I, I think I guess I was saying research scientists i don 't think should and by and large do trouble themselves with questions of morality that 's for bioethicists
1: but should should research scientists um, uh think through the possible consequences of their research?
2: I think they have to. And, you know, what's interesting now is, you know, now we're at a, p- a stage technologically where we can do almost anything, and it's only the imposition really? of, well, a lot of things, like pluripotency, We you know, which is something that I'm really interested in, which, you know, I mean, not to be incredibly reductive, but it, it just means that you can grow something, you know, not out of a stem cell, but you can manipulate a cell to regenerate itself into basically Benjamin Button itself. Right. So, when in an age when more technology is available to enable us to do more things than ever before in the history of mankind, it's the, art, it's the imposition of ethics, you know, as a society, and hopefully one can separate it from the cause of religion, um, that slows science down. And, it, you know, maybe that's a necessary thing. When science is outpacing the sort of ethics and morals that we've invented for ourselves as a society, I think it's sometimes not a bad thing. Right. And if scientists won't monitor themselves, Then someone monitors it for them. And, you know, to think of science as something devoid from politics is obviously a fiction. I mean, when you look at things like Tuskegee, um, I mean, and some, some of the other, um, kind of great, shameful, um, you know, medical experiments that have gone awry in the last 40 or 50 years, you know, you see that, that it's to, to talk about it as something that's removed from, you know, from, from racial and cultural politics is, I think, a fiction. Does that answer your question or no? No, but yeah, that's okay. Yeah, that's all
1: right. Um, uh, um, Alan, one thing I wanted to, to make sure I asked you about is um, the the Einstein's dreams ends um, not with one of these dreams, but with an epilogue uh, that I think takes place at, maybe a day before the theory of relativity was actually published. Is that right? Or two days before.
4: Well, it was... It, what was the date of it?
1: Well, the last dream was June 29th. I think it was June yeah. 30th. That, or, or was it July 30th? Let me see. Hang on. Yeah, I
4: think it was July.
1: It might have been. Yeah, if you think it was July, I'm going to go with you, and not me. <laughs> um, uh, but, um, but, 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 yeah. but. So, so, and the epilogue is is Einstein giving this manuscript to his secretary. She's going to type it up, and he um, uh, is. Uh, it almost seems despondent at, at the end. So he had a well-posed problem that he answered successfully, um, revolutionized not only physics, but really how we think about the world. And uh, the, the last couple of lines are, he feels empty. He has no interest in reviewing patents or talking to Besso or thinking of physics. He feels empty and he stares without interest at the tiny black speck in the Alps. And I was curious what you were trying to say there.
4: Well, I think it's always dangerous business when a writer interprets his own work. Looking at at the character, um, I believe that he felt empty because he had just gone through this incredible creative thrashing around and... He was spent, you know, sort of like the way you feel after a wild lovemaking session. Right, you are spent, and but you satiated. But you.
1: <laughs> I mean, no, I'm not. Speak I'm not, for yourself. <laughs>
4: <laughs> you, that you, assumes you, a lot. You, yeah. You, um, but you, you, you've emptied out everything that was in you. Right you're you're you and uh you sort of you miss it right it, it's it's no longer happening you know uh the um it's true that that there's a celebration when you when you achieve your some accomplishment but but a moment afterwards you realize that it's past
1: right. Right,
4: and then you have to deal with the rest of your life.
1: He did okay. Did ever... He <laughs> didn't he, know that he, back like... then, though.
2: He, he did okay with the rest <laughs> of
4: his life. I think it. I think it's it's the feeling of being spent.
1: And did you feel that way in your own scientific work?
4: Yeah, I think that. It, uh, uh, well, I mean, you you. You hope that that you'll your batteries will be recharged right. after a certain period of time, and I'm sure you hope that you write another novel. She's already written. I did it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, thanks. All right. Um, well, then the one after that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no more. <laughs> uh, but of course, you, you hope that 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 have another creative period, that you'll be inspired again. Uh, but at the moment you're just feeling exhausted, spent, depleted, and, s- and, and that's what I was trying to describe there.
1: And and is that, in your own life, um, is that feeling similar when you finish a book and and when you finish working on a problem? Yep.
3: Mm-hmm. All right.
1: Well, but, I mean, it happens to Parana, too,
2: when he comes back. I mean, I think research well, scientists... Great, I mean,
1: he, he describes his trying to adopt all these kids is. You know, he's right. looking for something to complete him. And right, but my, also, you my, know, my, I, I'm going to uh, interrupt you for a second. Um, one of my favorite descriptions is when he describes his just because it, it captures him in, in a way that is um, uh, so acute and mm. powerful. He describes his collecting of children as a tick. Right. Which I I, I both kind of got to his lack of humanity right. and what he was trying to do there. But I, but, I
2: was, but I was going to say, I mean, I think that research scientists in particular can dedicate a lifetime to a certain problem. And when you saw, and, and in this case, you know, he's an adventurer. I mean, he's, he's an intellectual and medical adventurer. And there's an incredible letdown um, when you solve a problem, especially when it's all consuming, as this problem was for him.
1: That's all I was going to say. Um, I, must, I might not be able to. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Here it is. So, um, what does he say? So, shall I tell you? This is um, this is this is uh, Norton speaking. Do you want you can? Do you want to read it? No, that's okay. all right. Okay. Shall I tell you how I always looked for those two boys? And he's talking here about um, boys that he saw decades earlier right. on the island. Uh, and he's now an old older man. Um, uh, now, man, now undoubtedly with boys of their own who were lost to me. Um, the one from Aina Ina. Uh, And the one who would lean against me and doze and how I searched and hoped for something of them in every child I collected. How I wanted to see the same steadiness in their eyes. Shall I tell you how with each new child I acquired, uh, I would irrationally think this is the one, this is the one who will make me happy. This is the one who will complete my life. This is the one who will be able to repay me for years of looking. Um, That last line... This is the one who will be able to repay me for years of looking. Was that referring to his looking for these two boys that he had seen decades earlier, or his years of looking for this truth about the islands?
2: I imagined it as, as looking for the two boys that, you know, that he that he lost contact with. And you know, one of the things one of the great things about creating this character was he's, you know, very stunted in obvious ways. I didn't want to put a label on it or or attribute it to pathology. But the way he thinks is often convenient, you know, for his own ends. But there also, I also, in this, there's sort of a guileless cluelessness there that's kind of heartbreaking. So even as he does end up doing terrible things, I think he does them out of a genuine sort of, not naivete, but a, a complete lack of knowledge of what it is to be a human. And it's in statements like this that I
1: think he betrays that. So it's not... Right, so you it's you, you don't see him as a psychopath. No, is, right. Um, all right, we're about halfway through. Uh, <laughs> I could I could go on um, talking to them right. for a long time about this, but why don't we open it up uh, to questions from all of you? Don't be shy. There are two um, mm-hmm. microphones. I'll keep going. If to,
4: how long, long does this go for?
1: <laughs> it's, I think it's. Um, I think we have the room for eight hours. Okay. No, it's right. it's uh, it goes till a little bit after seven.
4: Okay.
1: Yeah, would you come up to the mic and and um, if you could, just because we're recording it, uh, introduce yourself.
5: I hate microphones. Um, they love you. Can you hear me? Is it yes. working? Yes. Um, my name's Angela Herring. I'm actually a science writer at Northeastern University, and a lot of what I do is about getting things
2: accurate and portraying them correctly. Um, and when thinking about writing fiction about science, especially in one project that I'm thinking about where I,
5: I have to create, so it's a character that um, would, like, in this fictional world have won a Nobel. Um, that
2: requires some pretty significant science, but, it, but I'm struggling with whether, it, like, it can't be real science because this person didn't exist and I can't step on the toes of what really did happen so I'm just—it's a technical question, I guess. How do you deal with things like that?
1: Well, Hanya, I mean, you—you you actually dealt with that exact situation, right? Right, because you know, because Norton
2: is is meant to be a Nobel winner. Um, I as
1: Gadzysek was as Gadjusek was, yeah, Nobel.
2: yeah. So I wish I actually had put in more science. It just structurally didn't quite work. I think that there's a couple of different ways, from from purely technical perspective, as you know, as a writer, that you can you can go. I mean. I think you can do it without any science at all. I mean, I think that it's still as resonant... I think there are other ways besides the props of a lab or an experiment or so on that you can convey, you know, as Alan was saying, through a mode of thinking, you can convey that someone is a scientist um, and that, that they do think in a, in a very different way. Um, so I don't think you actually need, if this is answering your question, to necessarily have it be peopled with, you know, figures of science or so on and so forth. Although I think that makes a richer, more interesting read than having someone who's purely in, 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 his, in her, his or her head. One of the things I really did want to do with this, and it just didn't work out for various reasons, was actually show the Nobel ceremony. And I knew someone whose father had won, and so I actually had a lot of background on it. And that I thought kind of would have been a great scene, but in the end it was sort of self-indulgence, so I cut it out. There's a lot of things you can do with science in a novel. And the, the beggar question, I think, is deciding what to leave out because it just becomes too too much.
4: I, I think that, that, uh, that what you should do if you want some t- a plausible scientific discovery but, but, but a fictitious one is, um, first of all, decide what field of science you want your protagonist to be. Let's just say chemistry. Okay. Well, then, you're at MIT, so go talk to some chemists some professional chemists, and ask them what, is, what are people studying at the forefronts of their field. Where, where is the forefront of the field? And learn, uh, talk to them enough so that you get some intuitive idea about where the forefronts are. And then you can just ask one of these people what would be a plausible, important discovery
1: that is not going to happen before my book is published. <laughs>
2: <laughs> or you could take a moment that was, you know, one of the characters of Science I'm interested in is Rosalind Franklin, who worked on the DNA sequ- you know, mapping the double helical nature of DNA with Watson and Crick, and kind of got left behind by the tides of history. I mean, the other thing you could do is visit a very iconic discovery and sort of think, well, what if it veered off? What is, what's the untold story kind of behind the story we know? You know, what's, what's the sort of the footnote to that discovery? And could there be something in there? I mean, I think there's a lot of false starts and stops and red herrings in any major discovery. You know, I mean, there's people who were just this close and didn't quite publish in time, or they didn't quite make it in time, or they were, you know, a couple are ticks off. Are you off. talking about
1: an alternative history? Uh, like uh, a, or, or like kind of someone who nearly made it but didn't quite make it to the finish line because it was flawed? But are, you, are you thinking about uh, what if the Nazis won World War II? Or no, you thinking... I'm thinking
2: about more about someone like who is a minor character in a big discovery.
1: And so fictionalize. Right. their account in that right, actual Right, right, discovery. right, right, right. Ah, got it, right.
4: okay, right. Mary. Yeah, I have a question.
5: Mary Fuller from literature. So I was really interested by what you were saying, Alan, about the way that the different ways in which scientists and humanists think. And, of course, you're very well positioned to sort of speak authoritatively about that. And so I started immediately writing it down. You know, that scientists tend to think, are trained to think in terms of questions that have answers, and that such questions are well posed, and that humanists tend to think in terms of questions that don't really have answers, and that good questions, interesting questions, are valid in themselves Mm -hmm. and worth asking. And I was, just as I was sort of resonating with that a lot, um, and also thinking about, uh, well, get to that in a minute. Then I started thinking, well, wait a minute. Is that actually how I think as a humanist? Right? And I'm not sure that it is how I think. Right? I and mean, you can start with a question like, you know, what is God like? And that's a very big question. And so it's unanswerable. You know, I can't write an article about it. I'm not sure I can have a conversation about it very readily. That question has to be tamed. Right? So that you can, t- has to be reduced to a form that you can talk about you know, when I, when I write a research paper, I'm thinking about, sometimes I'm thinking about, well, I have this evidence, what question does it answer? Um, but sometimes I'm thinking about I have this big question, what part of it can I answer with the evidence that I have? Right? And so I, I think that we do to some extent, at least some humanists, are thinking in terms of forming questions so that they're answerable. Right and and so I wonder if there are other ways of characterizing um, the difference, you know. Um, and I think also that scientists—it's my sense anyway—that scientists are working with at least some questions in mind that are too big to be answerable yet. Like where did the universe come from, you know. I think that's kind of what Alan Guth has been working on, but you know we haven't gotten to the quite to the answer of that question. Right, we've gotten to a sort of part questions that are part of that. And and so, you know, I guess I want to I want to push that okay. whole thing a little bit further. And the other thing that I wanted to say is that some of to me one of the most exciting things about being at MIT is getting to have those conversations with people not just in my discipline, but between mm-hmm. disciplines and between schools and between those big sort of camps of humanists and scientists. Mm. I've had I've taught with scientists and had great it you know, and it's how do we create more of those opportunities? You know, I had a freshman advising seminar where somebody in physics came in and explained the science behind the most recent Nobel in physics in terms that were comprehensible to students that had taken eight oh one and to me. Right? And that was fantastic. Sometimes there are the Killian, you know, lectures that are that can be pitched at a level where you kind of get it. Um, sometimes not. Sometimes you see the senior administration sitting in the front row and going like, "I don't know what that was about." Kind of. Um, and so it's both a question of, of occasions when science gets communicated to non non sort of people not in that specific discipline in ways that they can engage with, and also just sort of occasions on this campus. How do we create occasions for more of those conversations?
4: Okay, well, let me, uh, let me answer the – address the first thing you said. I think the, the, the second set of issues of how can we have more forums for communication, I think that every – Seth and other people can speak to that. Um, um, Alan Guth um, and other cosmologists are not trying to solve the big question, where did the universe come from or what is the universe? Um, What we do uh, is we break big problems into smaller problems that are well-posed problems and have definite answers. Um, When when Alan Guth discovered the inflationary universe theory, um, he was working on a very well-defined specific problem. Uh, How many uh, magnetic units called monopoles were produced by grand unified theories, which are sp- particular kinds of theories that that combine all of the forces. It was a very specific problem with a well-defined answer. And it was out of that that the inflationary universe model came from. And that's the way we work in science. We take large problems and we break them into smaller problems until we come to problems that have re- been sufficiently reduced that there's uh, that we believe there's a well-defined answer. We don't know exactly where that's going to lead, but we know there's a well-defined answer to that problem. Now, um, looking at the humanities, um, and you mentioned that you 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 have evidence, and you want to find what kinds of of, of questions that evidence is related to. Uh, and you mentioned uh, the the nature of of God? What is the nature of God? So let's just stick with that as an example, which I think everybody would, would agree is a question that probably lies in the humanity, humanities, philosophy, theology, and so on. Um, the, the, uh, for me, the, the, the most powerful study of the nature of God is the work that, that William James did. The the great Harvard philosopher and psychologist, um, uh, which which I think is called the, var- the varieties of religious experience, yeah. and, and and I think everyone would agree that that William James was a humanist, and what he did in that study um, is he, um, uh, I'm sure that a lot, uh, that some of you are familiar with it. That he talked to a, a, a lot of different people about their uh, transcendent experiences, um, uh, a, a personal, ex- highly personal experiences, and when they w- in which they felt connected to God, and um, of course he had other historical stuff on religions and so on, uh, kind of mundane material, but the most original. And, and powerful material in that book uh, is the, the recorded uh, experiences that people have, you know, almost acting like an anthropologist, of, of articulating the transcendent experiences they had. Now, that is evidence of a certain kind. I mean, to me, that's, that's evidence that a humanist would do something with. Um, it doesn't answer the question, what is God, or what is the nature of God, but what it does is, it, is, it, is it, it, it partly helps us understand what is the human experience of God. And it's related to the big question, but it's not related in the same way as if I say, how many seconds does it take a ball to fall to the ground, hit the floor, if I drop it from a height of three meters? You know, you don't get an answer. You know, one point eight seconds. You don't get an answer like that. Um, so I think that 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 is the difference. Uh, that that you uh, you don't have these quantifiable. I mean, the, uh, science has these quantifiable these questions that, that can be quantified, that can be studied. That can be answered um, outside of the human body, that where the, the 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 methodology and the the reproducibility and the uh, instruments that are used for the measurements occur outside of the human body. Um, I think that ultimately, and, and uh, I think you're a much more card caring humanist than I am. That, that, that everything in the humanities and the arts is rooted within the human body and the human mind. And so, uh, so when you, when you find evidence in the humanities or when you, uh, when you apply findings to interesting questions in the humanities, you are in part uh, maybe in large part talking about the personal experience with the world. Uh, maybe thinking about different kinds of
5: humanities.
4: Well, it's it's a, a yeah, it's a, it's a huge field. So. I wonder
1: also if, if, if um, one of the distinctions is that um, in science you're looking for answers that are reproducible regardless of whose asking the question at a given time. Um, It has no, there's no, There. there's no reliance on the asker. And in the humanities, um, that's not always true. I would agree with you that that can be true sometimes, that there are questions in the humanities. I think that that was one of the things you were saying, that there are questions in the humanities that you can ask where there is a right and wrong answer. Um, but there are also interpretive questions that only exist in the province of the humanities and don't exist in the province of science where um, there can be many correct interpretations um, and interpretations that are built on evidence um, or maybe not many (coughs) correct interpretations but many equally valid ways to view a particular problem.
2: Well, I also think for artists in particular, whether you're a visual artist or a filmmaker... I want to make a distinction, though,
1: because that was something that when Mary was talking I was thinking about, a distinction between artists and the humanities. Right, but I'm just going to talk about artists. Yeah, no, no, but I mean, that was one of the things. When you started talking, I I began thinking that maybe the distinction was more between science and art as opposed Mm. to science and humanities. But I I don't think it necessarily is, but yeah.
2: Well, no, I was going to say, I mean, fundamentally, the the business of art, if it can be called a business, is about humans, you know, and, and it's the same maybe dozen questions that have been asked since time began, you know, what is love? Is there God? You know, why, you know, why does the world exist? Why am I alive? Who is I mean,
1: Taylor Swift? Who is that?
2: But but the same dozen or so questions in every culture, in every society, each of them answers them their own way, and then the answers get written over. I mean, it's a palimpsest, and it keeps rewriting itself again and again and again. And that is, you know, the wonderful part part of art, and it's what makes it eternal. Um, And also it's, you know, it's a question for which there will never be an answer.
1: Um, David, yeah, just come
3: up to the mic. I got you next. I'm not sure we've flattered the humanities in this discussion, <laughs> but I won't pursue it further, except to suggest that there's a classic way of thinking about the humanities as interpretive disciplines, uh, uh, to distinguish them from the empirical disciplines of the sciences. And there are of course problems of, of overlap and more and 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 uh, shared behavior. Uh, uh, but. I, but th- uh, I, there are uh, such complex issues involved in that large question that I'll uh, that, that that I'll back away from it and and, and, and bow to uh, li- live with what's already been said, with the proviso that we it, it's something we should explore much more deeply to be uh, uh, fully serious about. The humanities deserves, I think, a, a, a bit more complex account of the kinds of truths it offers. But I wanted to ask both Alan and Hanya, uh, a, a, an easier question, although one that fascinates me. I'd like you to talk a little bit about other books that incorporate scientific materials that you admire, that you think highly of, uh, or even ones that you think ill of that are particularly negative examples that might also illuminate your sense of when science in fiction really is compelling and really works. Yeah, it's a really good. Like, I want to ask you that too. <laughs> That's
2: a nice way of passing. Thanks. The back. Thank you. I mean, I'm
3: happy to go first,
4: but. Well, I think some other writers who uh, who who do very well with putting science and fiction. Um, Richard Powers is one. Um, Rebecca Goldstein, who was okay. going to be here, um, I, I could. Do you want to name them? There's not. Right? There's
1: not a lot of them. I mean,
2: frankly,
4: that a, Goodman's. Allegra, right? I was going to mention well, Allegra, yeah. Allegra Goodman, who's
1: um, more with the culture of science, but I thought it dealt with that incredibly well.
2: I was going to say Margaret Atwood. Apparently, I, you know, she it's, awesome. it's 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 she takes kind of the germ of the real and the near future, and then sort of goes nuts within that framework, and uh, to really colorful results. And I think she does a really nice job with mm-hmm. it, actually. And it's clearly researched it. Andrea Barrett is somebody Mm -hmm. else.
4: But there aren't a lot of people who are doing this. I mean, we're we're distinguishing science and fiction from science fiction here. Right, Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: right. Although you could, I mean, the answer could include science fiction also. It doesn't need to not include science fiction. In fact, maybe
3: you could address how slippery that distinction is. Yeah, right. Even though it's also a magnificent anthropology. Well, that,
1: that yeah, I mean that it, it's uh, that's a that's
3: a. I mean, the distinction
1: a, I would make about science fiction versus
2: fiction, and I think the the line is very blurry and it bleeds a lot. I think science fiction books, or what we call the genre of science fiction, are more interested in the creation of the world, whereas fiction books about science are interested in people. That's what I would think. I mean, they're interested in the philosophy of why people act the way they do, versus versus fantasy books and science fiction.
1: Do you read a lot of science fiction?
2: I have, you know, and and that's why the line is so blurry. And some people do it better than others. Uh, But some people, I think, again, really get caught up in the creation of this of the (coughs) fake universe and neglect the people, you know. And that's why it's called genre, and not and for better better or worse, not given its full due sometimes.
3: Right.
1: I mean, in some ways, if you think about um, science fiction as something interested in the creation of a different world, um, all fiction would fall into that in some regards.
2: Except I think in, in a novel, for it to be emotionally resonant, you have to, at its heart, believe in the people the character struggles, and the, the character struggles have to feel unique to themselves within the book, but also ask greater questions, those same dozen or so questions that all art asks.
4: Uh, what, what I would say, with just an elaboration of what Hanya said, is that I think that, for me, the, the distinguishing feature of science fiction, and I agree that it's a blurry line, is that in science fiction, the writer is focusing more on the technology and on the science. Right. Uh, And and what we call straight fiction is more on the people. Right. So there there are some science fiction writers who are who create very good characters. Right. Um, And and those you know Ursula Le Guin we can think of a few others who who move the genre closer to mainline fiction right because they they really are interested in the human condition. And portray that very well, right. but there are a lot of people uh, you know, that we would consider very great science fiction writers like um, Larry Niven, right. um, who uh, most his characters are sort of two-dimensional. Right. You, you don't read him for his great characters. you read him for the imagination and, and the technology and the science
1: yeah i i I just read a a book called the city um the City and the City The City and the City by China mayville which i I think most which i I think would pretty universally be described as science fiction but um is a, a description of two cities which exist in the same physical place uh and if you acknowledge the other city in any way, um, you have breached. And then you go into a sort of nether world jail, uh, but that's very much. Um, it focuses on the emotional lives of one or two characters in, a, in um, what I thought was a really profound way. So I might be thinking a lot about that. But but Hanya, related to that, you know, you are writing about um, a race or a. Would you call them a race of people that live yeah. on these islands that um, live for three or four hundred years? So, would you describe this, or has your book been described as a work of science fiction? No, it hasn't actually. And is that something that you've? I mean, you said that your that this is that you could almost think of it. As yeah, I think it walks.
2: Theory. I think it walks the line. I mean, ultimately, though, it was less about the science and it was more about it was more a character study. I felt.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I yeah. never felt it while reading that, so I was yeah. curious when you said that. But
2: I wouldn't be offended if someone called it science fiction.
6: Right. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Lily. I work in public radio, and I uh, mostly work with scientific content. Um, and so I deal with my fair share of non-fiction science writing, but the the thing that always makes it interesting is how people relate to... The storytelling. Um, And so I want to go back to the point about how people relate to the characters on an emotional level um, and the emotional reality overall with how they deal with that. Um, And why that makes it more engaging for readers um, or any audience, uh, depending on the medium. And um, so to cite one example, I was speaking to a scientist, an astrophysicist who works for NASA Goddard Center earlier today. And she was saying that it wasn't the science that really attracted her to the field um, originally. It was the drama. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, whether it's stars exploding or if it's, like, a a scientist who spends his entire life working on one question and then finally, you know, sees it come to fruition um, and finds the answer... Um, so I'm wondering from a writer perspective, uh, where do you find the drama in your characters and in the stories that you endeavor to tell, um, and then the ones that you're planning to tell? I guess that's the broader question.
2: Well, I mean, I think damaged people are always the most interesting, you know I mean this I mean this book, I mean the thing about that's why she wanted to work with me right. Now, I learned that from working with Seth. I mean, you know I mean damaged people, and again, I think that one of the I hate it when people say, "Oh, well, Norton, the character in this book is a, is a psychopath." I mean, once you start, as a writer, as a reader, sort of sticking diagnoses on on your characters, it, they're very easy to dismiss that way. The real question is, can you make a character who's uh, who's damaged and often abhorrent really resonate with the reader? Can you win your, the reader's sympathy? So that you know, in the second book that I'm working on, it's about a character who fundamentally never gets better, and that's what I wanted to start with—someone who. Over the course of this this book, and it's a very long book, learns things and changes and and grows and develops, but fundamentally never changes. And could that be an interesting sort of um, could could that hold a reader's attention for that long? Because I mean, ultimately, you know, as as I think we've all been saying in different ways, all novels are, you know, whether they they have a cast of animals or whether they have actual people, are about you know people and the human condition. And that's it I mean the one kind of person you never I think want to write is someone who you always want to write someone who's incredibly flawed versus someone who's likable and I know that 's treading into the likability kind of debate, which has been going on quite a bit after Claire Massud 's book, but I, I personally think likable after his
1: book?
2: Claire Massud's oh, right. book I mean you know likable characters are boring to spend time around
1: although what, I mean one of the real challenges I think you set up for yourself with this book is um, uh, a character who's so unsympathetic,
2: but I think he's pitiable too. Okay, yeah.
4: yeah. Um, I, I didn't pity him much. Yeah, I don't think I did either. I but did.
2: But. I did. I mean, I would. I would want to have dinner with him, and you know, he's a damaged, interesting character. Mm.
1: But and, and Alan, it's actually, it's an interesting question, and um, I was thinking about that a little bit in relation to um, both some of Rebecca's books and, and specifically Einstein's dreams, because um, I did find this very dramatic and very, mm-hmm. uh, um, I guess I would use the word thrilling in that I both times that I've read it, um, found it found myself very much wanting to come back to it and to find out what happened next, even though there are no characters in the sort of traditional way that we would think about characters. So, was that something that you thought about, or was the, did the drama sort of... No,
4: I, I, I did think about it, and that's why I had a, a story arc, and um, getting to your question from public radio, that I think that, that, that we were storytellers we, we love stories um, uh, I think stories is how we, we make sense of this strange world that we find ourselves in um, we, we, we tell stories to ourselves sometimes we make up stories about who, who we are we make up stories about people around us and so I think that um, that for a, 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 an article or a book whether it's fiction or nonfiction, to have a, a, an arc of a story is what is going to most interest the reader, even if the reader is not consciously aware of that. Um, and, and in my little book, Einstein's Dreams, um, the reason why I, I, uh, I put in the the interludes um, was to give uh, uh, a narrative arc. Um, at, at the very beginning of the book, Einstein is uh, uh, sleepless. He's, he's been up uh, with his dreams. Um, as, 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 as the book continues, at, at certain points, he's, there are waking interludes where he's talking to his friend Michelle Besso about this theory of time that he's working on. Um, and then at the very end of the book, um, he's finished his work on the theory. And so, uh, as as fanciful as the book is, um, the, it has that narrative arc. And so, I I, I do think that 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 all um, people, all science writers, whether they're writing about uh, whether writing fiction or nonfiction, they should look for this story. And usually, stories involve people, almost always. And and that's why uh, people may always make a good anchor for um, a story about science. I mean, most of the long science pieces in the New Yorker, for example, have have major characters in them. And, and you're getting, partly in addition to whatever science there is, you're getting the narrative of that person. Uh, there's a beginning and a middle and an end. Uh, and I think that that's as simple as it sounds. I think that that's critical towards engaging the reader. Is that hard to do when you're doing research?
6: So the follow-up question was um, is it difficult to when you're doing research for your stories that are science fiction, when you're looking at so many factual things to kind of maintain the scientific integrity of you know the research um, is it difficult how difficult is it to draw the actual story out of it, to find the characters and to um, kind of find the, the beginning, the middle, and the end?
2: Well, I mean, I did have to change details when the science didn't line up in this. I mean, you know, there are just things that seemed... I mean, there were lots of readjustments, but the character never fundamentally changed. His quest never fundamentally changed. How I knew he was going to fail never right, fundamentally the, changed.
1: W- w- you, the, the fictional character? Yeah. yeah that, right, right. Yeah,
2: but based on the research I did, I did have to change a lot of details, and it did affect and shape... Um, you know, I, I moved the book back in time a little bit so he could hit that 1953 Watson and Crick quick, quick discovery. I did a lot of adjustments, but it didn't fundamentally change the story or the character, which had already been said.
1: I'm curious about what type of adjustments you did. I mean, besides moving it around in time, what were the types of things that.
2: It was originally much more historically based. It was much more about Kuru, it was much more about right. Gajusek. And for various reasons, not least of which were legal reasons, I right. had to change all of that. Right.
5: Mary. So I have a science writing question this time. And, you know, Alan, you were saying just now that something about, you know, tell a story and stories have people. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately because I work on exploration. And a lot of the, you know, some of the exploration that goes on now and that will go on in the future, you can't actually have human presence Right, and so the Explorers Club now has members who are sort of NASA scientists who are sitting in mission control. And so I wonder about, you know, how, do, how can we tell those stories? Are there science stories that can be told without sort of human presence or without, you know, the personified human surrogate, right, of the sort of the robot or the Mars rover who's so cute and who's personified and has its Twitter feed and so on and so forth? Is there a narr- narrative strategy that doesn't involve people? Mm-hmm. And I don't know the answer. I'm really curious. Great
4: question. Well, the fact that you don't know the answer means it's a good humanities question. <laughs> That's a good pivot. <laughs> well, uh, I think it's harder to do if there are no people, but it's not, not necessarily impossible. Um, if if the, the scientific discovery has, I mean, everything happens in time, right there uh there's there's a past and a present and and if there's a scientific discovery that was made it wasn't made all at once there was uh maybe some initial you know uh there were previous discoveries that that discovery depended upon if were you talking about uh you said was it nasa was it about exploration? exploration of 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 what Okay, science outside of the lab. Well, um, there has to be, the person the, the the initiation of that discovery was uh, of that exploration was for a reason. Somebody wanted to know something. There 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 must have been some previous uh, exploration that started the one that you're interested in. Um, so I would say that, that, that if you're going to leave people out, that the, the story is, is in the, the, the chronological sequence of steps that led up to the particular exploration that you're interested in and the, the chronological steps of the exploration itself. That that, that, that has a, a chronological narrative in it that might partly replace having a human being who's the witness of all of this or the participant of it. But maybe you don't agree. No, no, I don't don't disagree. But, um, you
5: know, as as I meditate on this, I think about, you know, sort of, say, popular support for missions, right? And are people more interested when there's a person there who's personally at risk? I think about the Shackleton story and how popular it is. I think about David Mendel's work about the need to have humans on a moon mission, right? And do people do people care in the same way? You know, without there's that. I mean, I think of course you're absolutely right that for any story about a scientific discovery, that there has to be human involvement. Uh, you know, that's and and you can sort of widen the chronological frame so that that becomes very clear. Um, but you know, I'm I'm thinking just about sort of popular popular interest in kinds of, you know, again, I've, my paradigm comes out of thinking about exploration. Just think about how you maintain interest in things that don't have that, that hook of human presence. But anyway, there are other people that want to ask questions, so I'll just leave it at that.
4: Phil. Uh, my name is Phil McKenna. I'm a freelance writer. Hanya, I had a question for you about what you just said about having to change things for legal reasons. Um, I write nonfiction and to me, I guess I have this naive sense of what it would be like to write fiction where you won't have to worry about any legal issues because it's all fiction. Right. Um, could you tell me a bit more about that?
2: Sure. I mean, as I said, it was a good thing, part of the reason this did take me so long, I mean, most of it was just laziness, but most, but also I needed Carlton to die. I mean, I, you know, I could <coughs> never have published this book. He's not so well known that it would it wouldn't have been sticky to publish it during Gajisuk's lifetime. So he was conveniently dead. That was the first thing, and then you know, ran, you know, the publisher will read it and come up with tons and tons of questions and start freaking out. The thing they freaked out about the most was there's some disparaging things said about Merck, Lilly, and Pfizer. And the lawyer said, well, you know, we, we really can't say things. And I said, well, you know, we said that, we said bad things about NIH. And they said, oh, well, that's the government. You can say anything about them. <laughs> but, so there's this lot, lot of back and forth, like, you know, what about poor Merck? What about poor Pfizer? What about poor Lily? You said that they're kidnapping people from this fictional island and they're drugging them and killing them. And I said to the lawyer, well, clearly that's not the case. And she's like, well, I don't know. They're very litigious. In the end, they let it go. So there, but there's a lot of hand wringing worrying and so on. The thing they didn't bring up, which I thought was interesting, is I've never, and I kind of wonder if this will someday happen. Carlton's children are still alive, including the sons who accused him. Um, And sometimes people ask, have you heard from them? And I haven't. But um, this is sort of off track. I was also worried about hearing from Carlton's supporters, of which there are many. And, you know, um, my a relative of mine worked with Gajusek for a long time, and um, has been spending his sabbatical year visiting some of his former, fe- you know, uh, fellow, you know, research assistants who worked with him in Gajusek's lab. You know, he was in Poland for a while, then he was in Korea, now he's in Japan, and because Gajusek runs such a big lab for such a long time, there are many, many of these former students of his spread all across the world. So he was in Poland, and one of Gajusek's former research associates, who's now a really big deal there, said he read the book and he, th- he said, thank you so much for the wonderful and flattering description of Gajusek. And he thought it was really, you know, kind of um, a heartwarming and accurate depiction. So I guess there's that problem off the table. And if Pfizer and Lilly ever get around to reading it, we'll see what they say. <laughs> but yeah, but it was much more legally thorny did than they, I thought. Did the,
1: did the legal team um, recommend just... Creating names of pharmaceutical yeah, components. and I
2: didn't want to do that because right. you know I you know part of this obviously is also about the rise of big pharma at least in a small way, right. and I wanted to really keep their names in. So. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah, so one of my MIT classmates turned out to be one of the main proponents of cold fusion, so I wonder if you have any comments on fiction in science. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm not going to touch that. I know, <laughs> me neither. But
3: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> good delivery. Okay, yeah. Um, uh,
1: there is, um, let's see, There's. I wanted to make sure that we got to at least one more thing of the many things I wanted to touch on. Um, oh, Alan, uh, one of the things we were talking about earlier um, is the question of whether science, or you raise the question of whether science is a legitimate subject for art, um, and and how to handle science as an artist? Um, and I, I, the more I thought about it, I'm not entirely sure I I am clear on on what you're saying there. Um. And that your own career would seem to answer that. Well, I that. think
4: that anything is a legitimate subject for art. Um, and I think the, the only uh, issue for me and how you handle it is that you should, that you, you uh, if you're making art, um, that you, and let's, let's just, so we're talking about films, theater and books and novels for the moment. Right. That you don't want your your work to be didactic, right? Because if it is, then your your reader will be jerked out of the the imaginary world that you're creating. The uh, they will lose the emotional resonance, and and the ball game is over. Right. So so I, I think there are plenty of places uh, avenues for teaching science. You know, there's Nova. Uh, there is there's the New York Times there's plenty of wonderful popular science books uh, but I don't think that, that novels are, are, are the place to teach science I think you can have plenty of science in a novel but but once you, you 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 slip into the lecture mode where the reader feels like they're getting a lesson right then they will disengage
1: so so do you feel that science um, that that <coughs> The intention of art should not be to teach science, uh, or that um, regardless of the intention, you should not be teaching science. Well,
4: the intention of art can be whatever it wants to be. I think that if if you use a novel to teach science, it's it's like um, using a screwdriver to, to hammer a nail. You know, you're you're using a tool that's not well suited right. for the task. And and I think that, that uh, uh, I think that the, the great power of, of fiction, which it, it often has that nonfiction doesn't have, is it it provides an emotional experience for the reader uh, that that is different from reading a fact article. Right. I'm
1: I'm I'm trying to think of a way to extend the analogy, and I'm not sure I can, but. Um, uh, and this is probably a whole other topic of conversation, but um, you know, we spoke beforehand and we've touched on here the um, extent to which science is not taught these days across the board um, past a certain level um, and the level of scientific illiteracy. And because of that, even though um, it might not be the best tool, I wonder if there are situations in which it could be a more effective tool Um, for a specific audience. I was trying to figure out a way to talk about screwdrivers and hammers, and I couldn't come up with one, but that's probably a whole other conversation. Yeah?
7: My name is Peter Walsh. Uh, My question is, uh, to what extent is the distinction between science and art and humanities and everything else something of fairly recent creation? For example, Johannes Kepler essentially thought what he was doing in astronomy was theology. He was describing the nature of God, and uh, Leonardo, in his notebooks, you know, this, he's not saying on this page I'm a scientist, on this page I'm an artist. Mm-hmm. It's a continuous flow. Um, and in fact, in the Middle Ages, theology was considered the highest science. So, to what extent is this separation of science from other modes of thought, um, other? types of discourse, a creation of, say, the 20th century academic specialization, um, of uh, scientific and ins- government institutions and other things, where there really the purpose is to separate scientific thinking from any other modes of thought.
4: Well, the quadrivium and the trivium, which were taught back in the Middle Ages, did have very clear distinctions between the different subjects. You know, Latin and, and mathematics were were separate subjects, and and I think that if you had talked to Leonardo da Vinci, that he he would have known the difference between his you know calculations of of the buoyant force of of something submerged in water and uh, his his drawings of of, of things. And uh, uh, Kepler for Kepler. Um, even though he, he, he realized that he was, uh, he, he believed that he was uh, proving the existence of God or whatever, um, he, he, he knew that he was dealing with, with uh, mathematical calculations. He was making use of, of detailed observations um, that were outside of his body.
7: Yes, but what I'm saying is, I'm not sure that, he, that he, Kepler in particular was making that kind of distinction. I don't think he had the idea that because I'm doing a scientific calculation, it's very different from what I'm doing as a religious believer. And similarly, I don't think reading Leonardo's notebooks, that he thought that what he was doing in observing human figures was different from what he saw was doing when he was observing fluid dynamics. You know, to me, in reading him and reading especially the Renaissance um, humanists, they were seeing it as a continuous flow um, without making that distinction. And the mathematics, you know, you think of someone like um, Isaac Newton, um, he was obsessed with very complicated questions of Unitarianism, um, with, with uh, alchemy, with all sorts of things we would not consider to be scientific in that sense. And I I also don't think he was making the distinction between this kind of objective, cool science and his kind of obsessiveness with these, especially alchemy and other subjects. So I'm just really asking the question is, is this something we're projecting back on the history of science rather than uh, something that has always been true?
4: Well, do we have any historians Yeah, I was going to say, that, that, that,
1: that's one, that's, that, that could be a well-posed question. Yeah, there are people yeah. at MIT who could get it's a very a answers. It's a good question, yeah.
2: Right. We yeah. all have theories. I mean, you know, you could say that since the Victorian age, it's been more and more of a separation, and certainly as, as countries have secularized further and
1: further. But, yeah, I, it is a fascinating it's question. It's a great question. <laughs> I,
7: I, don't, I'm not... I, I mean, I, I said, part of this is coming out of an argument I had recently, which is... It's not really a scientific argument, but it's a popular argument that uh, religious belief is incompatible with doing right. good science. Right. And if well, you look certainly. at the history of science, you have to say, well, no, it's not incompatible because Galileo and, and Kepler and so forth and were Francis deep religious Collins believers and, and, and Gregor Mendel and so on. Um, and I've read recently several articles, oh, isn't it too bad that Gregor Mendel was a monk because it screwed up the science which is not how I read mm-hmm. the narrative at all right. um, so this is just a question you know it's, I think historically it certainly is true that in the course of society science had a very different role it wasn't necessarily seen as totally separate from uh, all the other modes of thought
2: yeah I think
1: I agree yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true, but again, I'm not a historian of science, so, um, I mean, I, you know, there are clearly science, Francis Collins, uh, who heads the NIH, is, um, a very fervent believer and has actually written books about, um, uh, his religious beliefs and how that squares with his science, so, but not being a historian of science, it's not a question I, or I think either of you can answer,
4: I wouldn't, so. I, 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 the only thing I would say is that that I think the and this is in agreement with your point is I think the special the specialization of knowledge uh, which has been taking place for a long time has has served to to separate the disciplines more than they were in the past and and that specialization has both uh, good sides to it and bad sides to it.
2: And it's true in the humanities too,
4: that specialization. You yeah. Know? Well, in everything. In yeah. everything, yeah. The specialization in everything. Yeah. Um,
1: I think we're going to probably wrap things up there unless there are more questions. Yeah. <laughs> You're saying, yes, wrap things up there. <laughs> um, uh, we are having a reception um, right now, uh, immediately outside this room. Uh, and we also have um, some of Alan's and Hanya's books for sale, and they will be here to sign them. Um, I cannot recommend them highly enough uh, and, and urge you to um, get them. You will not be disappointed. Uh, and thank you all for um, coming out and taking part. We really appreciate it.